this morning from in the book of Genesis, chapter 24. We're reading verses 50 through 59. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you, bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their, their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornament. And the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that, she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Have you ever noticed how much of this nation, even after that uh, prayer reminds us of the destructiveness of, of what's going on, have you noticed how often God is mentioned in our American culture? God bless America. That's become almost the national anthem, at least during our baseball games. Politicians and their speeches with, and God bless America. The phrase has become almost as common as God bless you when somebody sneezes. Does the use of the phrase... That use of that phrase make a person a Christian because they say it? Of course not. And yet, some Christians consider a person to be a believer just simply because they make reference to God in some of their conversations. Referrals to Scripture, or referrals to God, or referrals to Jesus Christ doesn't make a person a Christian any more than if somebody mentions the word American, it makes them an American. Our culture is rife with the abuse of God. The abuse of God as the excuse for every kind of both political as well as personal behavior. But it's not a new phenomenon. This has been going on since pretty much the beginning of time. King Jeroboam, who was the first king of the northern kingdom of Israel, made two golden calves. One that he put at the north end and one that he put at the south end of his kingdom. But he called those golden calves Yahweh, the name of, of Israel's God. It's reminiscent of Aaron when the people were in the wilderness and Aaron made that golden calf. And when Aaron made the golden calf, he too called it Yahweh and said, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. And that's not the earliest account, because here in this text, we have Laban. Laban is Rebekah's brother, 
He seems to be the one in charge of whether or not she's going to get married here. And uh, he refers in our text to Yahweh. You know, this is the Lord's will uh, that this has happened. But we know from what we've seen before and what we will see later in the book of Genesis that Laban didn't believe in Yahweh as a true God. Laban was a man who was far more interested in his own welfare and his own riches than he was in serving the eternal God. One needs to do no more than read the prophetic books of the Bible to see how common it was for people to name the name of God, to speak of of the Israel's God, Yahweh, and yet not to love God, to have no living experience with the true God. And we might wonder why. Why is it that you have so many people who think about God or refer to God but do not know God? And the answer came to me when I was working at uh, Taylor Packing Company many, many years ago before I uh, went to study at college. And most of my coworkers would regularly use the name Jesus Christ. Uh, They weren't using it in the proper way, as you can imagine. And so I would ask them, Now, why is it that when you're cursing that you use Jesus Christ? You don't say, oh, Buddha, or oh, Muhammad, or oh, some other name of some god. And they would give me that kind of quizzical look. And then they'd say, I don't know. I don't know. I never thought about it. I really didn't know. But I can tell you why. Because Satan wants us to use the name of God in such common ways that we get to the place where we just don't think about him. We don't worship him. We don't quake at his name. As the saying goes, familiarity breeds contempt. The difficult thing for Christians, then, is to be able to constantly have a focus on God, to to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength without becoming complacent in that relationship. To become so familiar, in a sense, with God that we forget God. That God just becomes another word in our vocabulary as it is in a secular world around us. If you're married, you know as husbands and wives that you've had to, you have to struggle to make sure that you remain in love with your spouse. When you see somebody all the time, it's very easy to become kind of complacent in that relationship. And so it is in our relationship with Jesus Christ. We can become complacent. Can we delight ourselves in the Lord with a passion that doesn't fade no matter what happens in our lives, especially in those times when God has blessed us? Well, that's really what this 
particular passage is about this morning. And so as our theme from the passage says, for Christians, our success in life comes from God's hands. And those successes are to be enjoyed, but they are not to be seen as our ultimate delight. Now think about what I just said. God is the one who gives us blessings. He is the one that pours out good things into our lives. And we are to enjoy those good things. He has blessed us so that we might enjoy Him and those blessings that He's given to us. But we are not to see the things of this life as those things that are our ultimate delight. For our ultimate delight must be in Him. The event before us in this passage is really part of the whole chapter. It begins with Abraham sending out his servant Eleazar to his family home in Haran, which is about 400 miles away, to get a wife for his son Isaac. Upon arriving in Abraham's hometown, Eleazar, the servant, meets Rebekah at the well. He believes that she is the one that God has provided for Isaac to be his wife. In the verses just before our text, which we looked at last week, Eleazar has told Rebekah's family just why it is that he believes that Rebekah should be the one. He shared what God had done and all the events of that. And everything seems to be moving towards that final culmination in which he will have fulfilled what he came to do and find a wife for Isaac. So notice then that life's successes are divine results. The blessings in your life, the successes that you have in your life, those have come from the hand of God. You have succeeded in whatever it is that you succeed in. You have succeeded because God has sovereignly worked it for His glory and for your good. The scripture is very clear. God is sovereignly in control of absolutely everything in our lives, whether it is those things that seem for us to be good or those things that seem to be hardships. In this case, we see the response here in Rebecca's older brother Laban's response, along with Bethuel, her father. We see it in verse 50. It says, Laban and Bethuel answered, This is from the Lord. We can say nothing to you one way or the other. Now, I'm sorry about the fact that my scripture passages... Uh, let's see. Oh, it's not actually from the ESV, uh, even though it says ESV, because I had changed. Anyway, um, what comes up there is going to be the same as what I'm reading, but it's not the same if you're looking in your Bible. That's all I'm saying about it. All right? So, in other words, what, what Laban and Bethuel are saying here to them is, who do we argue with the divine will? You know, hey, this is great. Go ahead and do it. All right? So they're not really saying, this is God's will. But you know what? That is how the servant took it. Because the servant knew 
that it was God's will. He believed, and we have seen it throughout this whole passage, that God was sovereignly leading him in everything, step by step. So notice that we need to recognize God's hand in everything ourselves. You and I, we are called to respond in the exact same way that this servant has responded all along. The world may make fun of us for our constant references to the, to the will of God, to the scriptures, to, to Jesus Christ guiding us. But as Christians, we ought to truly believe, we must truly believe, that God is in control of everything that happens to you from the moment you get up in the morning to the time that you go to bed at night and throughout your sleep. All of that, God is in control of perfectly. Sometimes the non-Christians will make fun of us as believers for our trust in divine guidance and blessing. And I think that that's the way that that Laban is responding in a sense in verse 51. Here's Rebekah. Take her and go and let her become the wife of your master's son as the Lord has directed. There's a great phrase there. As the Lord has directed. No truer words could have been spoken by him, even though it's doubtful that he believed those words. Even Christians, though, tend to go through life day after day without recognizing that every step that you take, everything that you do, is under the divine control of a sovereign God. If we are blessed and we're successful in our jobs or in our family, too often we see those things as a result of our having said the right thing or having known the right people or having gone to the right schools. I've heard good Christians use that off-spoken statement when someone gets a job and they say, well, it's all about who you know. You know that's why they got the job, because it's all about who you know. Well, from a secular perspective, it, it may appear that way. <clears throat> but for us as Christians, the Bible is very clear <clears throat> that whoever is... <clears throat> frog in my throat this morning. <clears throat> and I can tell you why. This is not part of the sermon, folks. It's, you know, so whoever is editing this message can edit this out. <clears throat> but, <clears throat> excuse me, yesterday I was at a family reunion. And uh, those of you who've been around me for very long know that when I go to uh, those kind of events, uh, I don't keep my mouth shut. I don't keep my mouth shut any other time either, but I, especially at a family reunion. So uh, I did a lot of yelling and a lot of playing and those kind of things. So just a little bit of a frog. Um, so just excuse me if I clear my throat a few times. But the fact is that as Christians, we go through life and we forget that God is the one who is in charge. And that is true even if we get a job. If we don't get a job and somebody else gets that job. God is in control. No president is elected because the people elected them. That president is elected because God has appointed them to be elected. And no king or ruler or mayor 
or any politician that's put into any position apart from God's divine and sovereign will. Now, we may not think that it's a good choice by God to put certain people into positions, but that, in the long run, doesn't matter, for God is carrying out His purpose and His will throughout this universe. Our successes are not because we are stronger. It's not because we are better looking. It's not because we are more educated. It is whether we're a Christian or not, every person is under the sovereign hand of the Almighty God. Uh, Thank you, sir. Nothing is outside of his control. All we have to do is look at the scriptures, and we can see that clearly. The book of Job... And all the things that happened in the book of Job in chapter 42. What's Job's final conclusion about the whole thing? That God was sovereign. That God was in control. I'd heard of you with the hearing of my ears, but now my eyes have beheld you. And I, I repent in dust and ashes because I didn't see you as God. I didn't recognize your hand in everything that was going on in my life. You can see the same thing with David. Or with Esther, in the book of Esther, where God isn't even mentioned once in the whole book. And yet you see God on every single page as he divinely controls all that happens in Esther and Mordecai's life and Haman as well as the king. In the New Testament, we see Paul letting us know that everything that's happened in his life whether it appears bad or good, whether he was stoned or whether he was shipwrecked or whatever, all of that sovereignly working for God's glory in his life. Every biblical character came to understand that God was in control. David, as he slings his sling and fires off that rock, that was a God-directed rock that took down Goliath. It wasn't David, it was God. I wonder, do you look at your life that way? Do you see that everything that is happening in your life, that is directed by the hand of a God who's in control of a whole vast universe that he's created? But notice also that we need to rejoice in God's grace always. For if we see that God is in control, then we must rejoice in everything that happens As Christians, our hearts should be constantly overwhelmed with the wonder of God's divine providence. The Apostle Paul reminds us of that in Philippians 4.4 when he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. That's exactly what this servant does. When he hears the response from Laban and Bethuel, his response is to worship God. To rejoice in the Lord. We see it in verse 52. It says, when Abraham's servant heard what they said, he bowed down to the ground before the Lord. (laughs) I wonder, how many professing Christians would have that kind of response? How many of us are so quick to give thanks to God for the blessings that he bestows upon us? We might be quick to pray to God when there's something going wrong and and ask him to to help us in our lives. But are we just as quick to thank him when he brings us through those things and blesses us? 
This servant all along has glorified God with everything that he has said in every conversation that we have seen so far. But the real test, the real test of whether or not he is truly a servant of God comes down to this. You see, it's one thing for him to pray silently, which he did earlier. Okay? To say to, to Abraham, who he knows is a worshiper of God, to, to say to Abraham, well, you know what? Abraham, your God's in control. That's, that's fine. But now it comes down to how he is going to respond and how he's going to respond publicly. And what do we see? As soon as he hears the answer and knows that God has divinely controlled everything and brought him to this moment, he falls down and worships God in public, in the presence of Laban and Bethuel and the rest of the family. He falls down in worship. He doesn't pat himself on the back and say, yes, boy, I did a great job in timing things out and working all this. Instead, he lets God be God. He is not embarrassed by acknowledging the divine hand in his life in public. I find it interesting that so many Christians who will pray in the privacy of their home and thank God for their meal won't do the same thing when they're out at a restaurant. I don't suggest that we ought to flaunt our faith. That we ought to, to, you know, get out there and say, I'm a Christian! Well, I'm going to pray. Everybody be quiet around me. No. But we should never be ashamed of it either. Consider Daniel, who upon hearing that the law had been passed, that you're not allowed to pray to any god or any other person except the king. And what does Daniel do? He goes back to do the same things that he was used to doing Praying three times a day. Even if it cost him his life being tossed into a lion's den. Where God sovereignly controlled that as well and brought him out safely. In Romans 1, we are reminded that we should not be ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Jesus in Luke 9 told us that anyone who is ashamed of him on earth, he would be ashamed of them in heaven. If we truly recognize that the successes in our lives, the blessings that have come to us, have come to us by the hand of the sovereign God, then we should gladly rejoice in him, whether in private Or in public. You know, our God is a good, good father, as Chris Tomlin wrote in the song of that title. But do you know that to be true in your life? Do you see that as the reality? Have you learned to trust him in every circumstance, whether good or bad? I know many Christians turn to God when things are tough. When things are going hard in their life, they cry out to God. But how many of us have that same urgency to worship God and praise Him when things are going great in our lives? When the blessings are being bestowed upon us? 
We need to understand that life's successes bring deserved refreshment from God. You know, it's a, it's a bit disconcerting to me that there are so many Christians that I talk to, and it's becoming more and more, and I think because of the, the, the increasing persecution that's happening in America for uh, Christians, but it bothers me to think that if you're being blessed, they think that, that you can't be being faithful to God. If there are blessings that are happening in your life, you should be suffering. Now, the Bible is very clear that as Christians, we will suffer. That trials and tribulations are part of living in this world. There will be persecution for us as believers. But the fact is, God is not interested in turning our life into a gulag, into a concentration camp. God loves to bless his children. Well, Jesus and the apostles suffered, and we see it very clearly in the scriptures that they did. They also saw God's mighty hand at work in providing miracles, miracles of healing, miracles of feeding the 5,000 men, women, and the children, the freeing of demoniacs, and so many other great miracles. So notice that we may reward those whom God has used because of the blessings that God has given to us. Abraham had his share of troubles. We've walked through the book of Genesis up to this point, and we've seen those troubles that he's experienced. But he also enjoyed many blessings from God. Several times in the passages that we have studied as we've gone through the book, we've watched as God has poured out blessings on his life. It is because of those blessings that we have this text in front of us today. Look at verse 53. The servant brought out gold and silver jewelry and articles of clothing and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave costly gifts to her brother and to her mother. As Christians, our hearts should be broken for those that are suffering around this world, especially for those who are Christians who are hurting. Our short-term mission trips to Guatemala, to Cuba, they've reminded us that there is tremendous suffering in this world. Marcy has shared with us some of the devastating needs of, of, of the homeless in our communities, especially the women and children. And as Christians, we want to reach out. We want to help them. But our Christian faith is a balance. It's a balance between being grateful for the blessings that God has given to us as we enjoy those blessings, but also knowing that God has given us those blessings that we might share them with others. The steward, he has an obligation here. The obligation is he is asking them for their daughter, and he has an obligation to give them uh, presents and gifts so that uh, you know, because he's taken their daughter from them. That's the obligation that he has. And a lot of times, especially in these biblical times, those that were the wealthier side, the, the man's side, would give those gifts in order that the family who might be poorer would be able to give a dowry with their daughter. But what does this servant do? This servant gives those gifts as expected. But then he turns around and he gives tremendous gifts to Rebecca 
so that, in a sense, he's paying her dowry for her. He's going way above and beyond the responsibility that he would have had. Consider, my friends, the blessings that God has given to you. Do you see them as belonging to you? Oh, you can put some money in the offering plate, maybe even a tithe in the offering plate, but do you see the rest as belonging to you? Or do you see that God has gifted you with all those things and that every penny belongs to him? And you need to ask him, God, how do you want me to use the resources that you have given to me? Are they your resources? Or are they given to you by God that you might bless others? But notice that we should also rest in God's blessings. You see, there's always a danger when we say, God is giving you this so that you can give it away. And that's true. But sometimes when we do that, we give the idea that you shouldn't enjoy the things that God has given to you. I was recently on vacation with my wife for two weeks down in Ocean City, New Jersey. And uh, as we left the church that we were attending uh, on Sunday, we were talking to the pastor. And we've, we've known him for years, many years. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we were talking to him at the end of the service. And as we walked out the door, the pastor, uh, we, we, you know, thanked him for the message that he'd given and, and chatted with him for a little bit. And he, he looked at us and he said, you know, I've never taken an extended vacation like you guys. And we didn't get into that. And I don't know if he was saying that we shouldn't take that vacation. I don't think so uh, at, at all, because like I said, we're good friends. But he's got like, what, seven, eight kids, Karen? I mean, he's got a big family. And so he probably can't afford to go uh, on that vacation. But you know, there, there are times when people look at Christians who may have blessings, and they kind of look at that like, wow, you really shouldn't be that blessed. You should be giving it all away. But there's nothing wrong with enjoying the blessings that God has bestowed upon us. Look at verse 54. Then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night there. Now they'd worked hard, and they had completed the task and now they're receiving a hearty meal, almost as good as what Vitaly over here provides for us uh, in our uh, benefit dinners. A, a great hearty meal, and now they're getting a good night's rest. Now, I understand there's inequity in this world. Tremendous inequity. There are those who have barely enough food or shelter to survive even day to day. And if our hearts don't break for their suffering, then can we really call ourselves children of God? For his heart truly does break. And yet their suffering does not mean that others cannot enjoy the wonderful blessings that God has bestowed upon them. My brother is, lives in uh, New Mexico, no, in Arizona, sorry, in Maricopa, uh, Arizona. And he was at the family reunion for the first time in about 10 years. It was great to see him. We were talking about living there, and he says, I hate it. 
I hate it. He, li- he lives there for his work. He says, I hate it. He says, it's dust, 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 dust all the time. Now, should I say, wow, you know, I should suffer with you, so I'm going to move to Maricopa so that I can suffer the way that you suffer? Or should I say, well, thank God, he let me live in New York State where we get plenty of rain. There's a balance in our lives as to what God has given to us. Going to work, buying a house, enjoying birthdays and holidays, getting the next technological marvel. Those are all blessings that we have because we live in America. And yet they should not be the center of our lives. They should not be seen as the finality of our lives. Jesus made that clear when he responded to the, the charge against Mary. Remember when Mary anointed his, his feet with, uh, with that expensive ointment and, and Judas got on a case about it? And Jesus' response was, the poor you have with you always. Now you can't say that Jesus was callous, that Jesus didn't care about the poor. He spoke so much about the poor and the needy and and the concerns for that. And we see it throughout the Old Testament as God spoke to Israel about their lack of concern. And yet Jesus was making a statement. He knew that there's a balance in life. That we are to recognize and enjoy God's blessings while we mourn over a broken world, a sin-infested world. And we ask God how we can impact that world. Which brings us to our next point, that life's successes move toward destined results. The results that God has ordained. You see, any blessings that we enjoy on this planet, all of those are not an end in and of themselves. And that's what we have to keep in mind. The experiences of this life are meant to give us a hunger to reach the end of the journey, where we will be always in the blessings of God. We see that in a way through how this servant reacts the next morning when he arises. We see it in verse 54. It says, when they got up the next morning, he said, send me on my way to my master. Now, sometimes when we're reading the scripture, we kind of read those things and we really miss the point of it, of what's happening here. Think about these men. They're used to a good life. They're working for one of the richest men in the whole of the Middle East at that time, Abraham. They've been working for him, and they have plenty. They have good food. They have you know, good shelter, everything. They're, they are blessed by that. But now, they had to leave that comfort behind. They had to travel 400 miles on rationed food and drink sleeping on the hard ground, moving forward towards this final end. For the first time in weeks now, they get to sit down to a great meal, a home-cooked meal. And they get to sleep in nice beds of comfort. How would you feel the next morning? Let's do that again tonight. (laughs) (laughs) let's enjoy a little bit more rest, give my back a little bit, you know, more peace, right? 
You would expect them to want to take advantage of Hilton-like accommodations. But instead, they get up the next morning and they're ready for the next task. So notice that we ought to remember our final destination as we're going through life. It must have taken great willpower for those men to pack up their things and get ready to go the next morning. I'm sure they were tempted to acquiesce when we hear those words from Laban and her mother, uh, Rebecca's mother, in verse 55. And her brother and her mother replied, let the young woman remain with us ten days or so, and then you can go. But he said to them, do not detain me. And now the Lord has granted success to my journey. Send me on my way so that I may go to my master. I'm afraid there are far too many Christians who would have said, cool, yeah, ten more days, relaxing, yeah, that sounds good to me. Uh, Let's do that. Why would I think that? Because that's what I see in the lives of many Christians day after day. Living in this world as if this is all that matters. Relaxing and enjoying the benefits of what we have in this life. In the uh, book Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, who is the main character in that book, along with his friend Faithful, come to the city of Vanity Fair. In Vanity Fair, there's all kinds of pleasures and blessings and, and all kinds of good things there. And they are tempted to fall in, but they don't. They remain focused even to the point where faithful ends up being killed. Why do they remain faithful? Because in spite of the beauty and the the, the blessings of Vanity Fair, their eyes were in a city whose builder and maker was God. And the book is called The Celestial City. And they kept that in their vision. So to us as Christians, let us not become seduced by the pleasures of this life. They are but a momentary Pleasure, the Bible says. Let's keep our eyes focused on our eternal destination. Notice that we will receive God's confirmation if our eyes remain focused. Do you know, do you want to know whether you've settled into Vanity Fair or whether your eyes are still in the celestial city? You want to know how you can tell that? The answer is in the fruit that you're bearing in your life. Are you growing in your faith? Is God using you to bring men, women, boys, and girls to an understanding of the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? Are you serving in your church so that the bride of Christ, his church, is prepared to meet him? If your lifestyle and your words are glorifying to God, then some in the circle of your influence are going to see that and they're going to desire to know the God that you serve. And that's exactly what happens in our text. You see it with Rebecca in verses 57 and 58. Then they said, let's call the young woman and ask her about it. So they called Rebecca and asked her, will you go with this man? I will go, she said. Well, you can't get much simpler of an answer, can you? But I will go. She's known these men for a whopping one day. One day. She's never met Isaac 
who's supposed to be her husband. And yet, she says, I will go. Why? Because she has seen the demeanor of these men. She has seen their faithfulness. She has seen them worship the true God. If they are so respectful, so gracious, and so worshipful, then what must their master be? What must Isaac be like if these men who are servants are acting this way? My friends, this ought to be the case of your life and my life amongst the people with whom we have to do. Does the graciousness of our Lord flow out of your life into the lives of the people around you? Do they look upon you and wonder about the God that you serve? Do they even know that you serve that God? Does our eagerness, our own eagerness to to go to Christ and to, to be with him, create in them a desire to join us so that we might meet him together? Few people have ever become Christians because of the apologetics of some master apologist. The vast majority of people have become Christians because they've been invited to know Christ through friends, through family, through acquaintances. You may quote John Calvin or Martin Luther. You might have a doctor or minister or elder before your title, before your name. You might give powerful expositions on the scripture and and be a great teacher. But few people, if any, are going to come to Jesus Christ because of those things. Jesus' closing command to his disciples was to go and make disciples. Disciples are those who want to follow a true master. In our case, we are called to live and to speak in such a way that our family, our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors that they might long to know our dear Savior. You see, the story of Rebecca is a historical event, but it is also a type, a picture, of the glorious marriage of Christ and his church, what we see in Revelation 19. Christ is in heaven, and he's awaiting a bride. The Father has sent us into the world Even as Abraham, the father, sent these servants, sent us into this world so that we might make the bride willing to say, I will go. How well are you doing as a steward of what God has given to you? How well are you living out the life of Christ? Are you using your life for your own selfish ends? Or are you using your life to reflect the glory of God in such a way that he will have a bride. People coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and desiring to spend eternity with him. As we look at this passage, we see all the wonderful things that that this servant has done and is doing for them. God has called you to be that servant, to be that steward. Christ is waiting for a bride. 
Are you sharing Christ? Are you living a way that makes people desire to know him? And so in conclusion, do you know that all of your abilities, all the gifts that you have, that those are from God? He has given them to to you that you might use those resources for his glory. Do you find delight in the gifts that God has given to you? Do you you enjoy the blessings that you have and give him thanks and praise and worship him because he has blessed you in so many ways? But ultimately the question is, are you stuck in Vanity Fair? Have you been caught by all the pleasures of this life. And in doing so, you've missed the celestial city. You've missed the wonder of what God has for us in eternity. Rebecca said, I will go. I will go because she saw the lives of these men in just one day. How about the people who have seen you for more than one day? Let's pray. Our Father, we claim to be in love with Jesus Christ. We claim, Father, that, that you have elected us and brought us into your family, that you have saved us through the precious blood of our Lord Jesus. You've forgiven our sins. You have awakened faith within us so that we might believe on him. You have given us the gift of your Holy Spirit, and you have lavished your love upon us as children of God. We have all of these blessings, plus you've put us in America, where we have more blessings than the vast majority of the people in this world. Have we forgotten to worship you? Have we forgotten to live in this world with a sense of joy in such a way that the people around us would be able to say, if we invited them to Christ, I will go. I will go. I want him as my husband. I want him as my savior. Give us that heart. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.